Avonmouth, The Docks, Ladies Rugby, and Toxic Sneezing. Seven miles downstream, we reach Avonmouth, where the Bristol municipality have built their extensive docks. Covering an area of over six square miles, they are one of the most modern docks in the world. Large quays offer berthing space for hundreds of ships, and dry docks with repair shops are placed at suitable points. Constant and regular arrivals of ships from all parts of the globe, carrying foodstuffs and war supplies, present scenes of prosperous activity which prove, without words, Britain's mastery of the sea. large and small, regularly carry their cargoes to and from Bristol and many other great British ports in face of all threats to the free passage of merchant ships upon their lawful occasions. From the huge warehouses and broad wharves of the Avonmouth docks, vast quantities of our food supplies and the raw materials for our manufactures are distributed all over Great Britain by road and rail. Here, on the other hand, may be seen the output of British workshops and factories. Every ship which reaches Bristol reloads with cargoes which will carry the name and fame of British skill and craftsmanship across the seas into the markets of the world. watch the tugs urging the great grey ships out towards the sea, we remember that only a few miles inland, this great river was a dancing trickle of water passing through the peaceful countryside. But here, where the fresh waters meet the salt, it has become a focus of world commerce. Soon, the tugs have done their work and the ship is underway heading towards the Western Hemisphere. We think of the courage of the seamen who sail these ships and of the Navy, whose vigilance guards them safely to their destination.
Okay, off we go then. Right, um, well this is Andy King talking to Ernie Blake, long time tug skipper. When did you first decide you wanted to go and work on the tugs or is that just something that came in uh, no. by accident? So I left school at 14. On the Friday I joined a little tug. Five o'clock in the morning at Avemouth on the Saturday and my first week was travelling the Bristol Channel towing barges with the CGM. I joined a small tug firm called Benjamin Perry's. Mm-hmm. Stuck that for about 18 months, then I was called up for National Service. Came out of National Service and went back to Benjamin Perry's. From there, I progressed to Captain of the John King after about 18 months of mate of the Bristolian. Spent eight or nine happy years up and down the Bristol River, which the latter end of the time I spent there, we were doing trips to Sharpness quite regular with Russian timber ships. Mm. From there, after about eight, nine years, I got promoted, or they said it was promotion in them days, <laughs> to the Avemouth tugs. I went master of the Bristolian, the original tug that I was cabin boy of for a short spell, but not for long. I went and done a bit of deep sea towing for Kings, towing scrap metal from Scotland to North, Northern Spain. Gijon, Abidus, and places like that. We also done trips to Lisbon. We also done a trip to Malta. From there, I got promotion to the Port Garth, which was a new tug at that time. Mm. And we took the Lebrover in Holland, and we run her back. And I stayed master of her until the time I retired. I don't think there's much more that I can say <laughs> it, 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 as, as regards to a quick run through of yeah. what I've done. Yeah. That's quite varied though, isn't it? I mean, it's always struck me talking to tug people is that they either stick it out for yeah. six months and get fed up with it, or we, they we stick had a with lot it. of them. Yeah. yeah, we had a lot of people that came into the job. We've had as many as four firemen in a week when I was captain of the Bristolian, the steam tug. We had one chappy come there for health reasons. He yeah. was a milkman. And he was told he had to get an inside job <laughs> because of his health. I think he had TB, but I'm not sure of that. And he stuck it for two days. Uh-huh. And one of those days he went sick. <laughs> he joined us on, on, on a midweek day. We showed him what he had to do. He said, all right. Oh, he said, go home. He said, get some food and I'll be back. But we didn't see him. But he did come back the following day to collect his belongings, what he had, which wasn't a lot. Yeah. And he went, we didn't yeah. see him anymore. Yeah. But you, the majority of pe- people in Avonmouth, that was a livelihood for them, but there's not that many that stuck it really for the amount of people that we've had in Tugs because of the tide work, the long hours, and we were doing long hours. Yeah. It was nothing to do 50 or 60 hours a week. Port was very, very busy. Yeah. I've yeah. seen as many as six and seven ships tied up alongside one another, waiting for berths to yeah. discharge yeah. cargo. Yeah. You, you know, and they were busy. We've had banana boats laid up there for weeks on end, waiting for the boiler makers to do work on them, Jeffs and Mount Stewart's. Yeah. 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 It was a very, very busy time, but it was a way of life. Yeah, It absolutely. was a steady job. It wasn't mm. the best paid job. By far it wasn't. Mm. I had friends, you know, and mates at school that went to the building trade and was earning... Four and five pounds a week. And I was yeah. only, when I left school, I think I was on 
two pounds seven and six a week. Yeah. yeah. And plus a, a small amount of overtime, but that didn't never amount to much. Yeah. Give me a reasonably good living. Mm. You, you know, I've managed to bring up three children with it. We've always had the holidays, yeah. which there's a lot of people haven't been on holidays no, no, go into commitment of money. Mm. But no, I got no regrets, no regrets whatsoever. You you know, having started in them, and more or less finishing in them. So when you left school at fourteen, and you went out, I mean, you've got a family history really of um, yes, of people on the tugs. Was what was a sort of fairly typical day would be like for a for a cabin boy for the boy on a tug. On boarding the tug, whatever time it was, day or night, the first job was the boy had to do was light two coal fires, uh-huh. slow but sure combustion yeah. stoves. That was his first job. And he had to get the kettle on, on both s- stoves for the captain and the engineer, which was normally forward of the tug, and the rest of the crew, fireman and mate and second mate occasionally in bigger tugs get the kettle going for when they stepped aboard. And then there was uh, trimming lamps, scrubbing cabins, a general dog's body, really. Running out to the village to get tins of milk or loaves of bread, because very often we would go down there on what we called a watch. And you never knew when you were going home. So it meant bread every other day from the bakers outside of Abanth Docks. And... Get the fireman's washing water to go home with. Yeah. They had to get the hot water in a bucket for the fireman to wash so they could go home, stay behind and empty the buckets and have everything laid ready for the next time aboard if we were going home. But very often we used to stay down four or five days a week, yeah. you, you know, and not go home. We'd finish at 11 o'clock at night and the last bus had gone and I lived in Hot Wells, so I couldn't get home. So it meant sleeping aboard. Yeah. Uh, but not only for myself. A lot of them had um, push bikes that lived locally. Yeah. And yeah. They, but the general day's work for a cabin boy was to do as he was told. About the docks, it's quite interesting that the docks was formed as we know it now in 1877. But remember, there's two docks. There's the center docks has uh, has been there since that the merchants brought their ships from the Bristol Channel uh, down the Avon mouth itself, the river, into the center. And the reason they did that was most of the merchants had properties and warehouses there. The actual docks of 1877 was always been a dock of sorts there. The Romans had a docks there because they controlled part of Wales. It was easier to uh, use the docks at Shirehampton uh, just across the water which is just slightly inland of the Bristol Channel, and they had equivalent docks in, in, on the Welsh side of the, of the Bristol Channel. Now, the, the docks itself has a chequered history, because in I guess, I guess it happened in 1923, was the first real serious uh, eruption, a problem between the dockers and the management. The dockers had struck for higher wages. Uh, this was supported from throughout the country. It wasn't just the dockers of 
um, Avonmouth, but there was, and I must include also the dockers of Bristol City because, as, as I've said before, there's two separate docks. So anyway, they they didn't get what they wanted. The Jack Williams, who was the organiser, said that it would not return to work um, on a pay cut. But in the in in any event, they did. Um, in 1945, I think they got a few shillings more for for their troubles. So in a way, it it showed solidarity, and and they did sort of get some of the stri- uh, money that they required. The government, in response, sent in 21,000 troops, um, not just to Bristol, but to all the docks to break the strike. But um, I don't think that was successful. In solidarity with the Canadian um, dockers, Avonmouth and Bristol City docks refused to unload US-Canadian ships that were using what they termed scab labour, i.e. that was labour that was um, in replacing the striking dockers. Um, the, again, the, the government felt that this was a, a, a communist um, uh, uh, what would I say, intervention. So they again sent in the troops, but the dockers refused to um, cooperate with the troops. Um, these docks included, uh, you know, both Avonmouth, um, Bristol City docks, uh, also the Liverpool, Newport, Leith and Southampton docks and the London dock. Then on a separate issue, in 1962, workers of the Avonmouth docks refused to work alongside uh, 200 black workers from the West Indies. I mean, it's ironic when you think it would have been the same predecessors of the dockers that were loading the ships uh, with African slaves to the actual West Indies. So the, 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 this confrontation happened and re- the, the management were panicking. So what the management did, it didn't actually sanction the, the white uh, racist. What it did, it sacked 60 of the black uh, workers and uh, the other remaining uh, workers, black workers, were subject to racial abuse. Neither the police nor the management uh, attempted to, um, you know, intervene. Uh, so in a way you could say they, you know, indirectly supported it. In the end, uh, nothing was resolved, but the next year in 63 started the boycott of the Bristol Bus Company. So really that was an effective boycott and it, it, it resulted in the uh, emancipation of, of, the, of the black workers both in the docks and in the, in the bus company. Obviously it's an ongoing thing, uh, you know, there is kind of still racism around and, and we just have to be very vigilant about that. But hopefully things are getting better. Before the Victorian times, the area then known as River's Mouth was muddy, wet and no good for anything. It was not until the 1870s that a port in Avonmouth was developed to accommodate big ships that could no longer navigate the journey into Bristol City docks. My name's Lucy O'Brien. I play rugby at Avonmouth Rugby Club. Our club is a local community club. It's been running since 1897. We have three senior male sides. We have a female side, uh, like ladies team. We have a vets team. We have, I think it's something like 15 children's sides. We have three girls' sides. They get to under 12s, they can't play with 
rugby boys anymore, so we've got a girls section for them to go straight into. And then obviously when they reach 18, they go on to ladies. So it's a big crowd. We've got something like, oh, I think there's something like 150 senior players. And then we've got about 350 children that play at the club. I played rugby first when I was 17, so that's quite a while ago. And uh, the team folded some years later. More recently, um, myself and a lady called Claire Evans started the girls section off and Claire become unwell and uh, was diagnosed with cancer. So um, she passed away a few years ago. So from that, we had a charity match in in honour of Claire. Then all the ladies that played in the match decided they wanted to continue on playing. So last season was the first season that we entered a league and we come fifth overall, which is really good. And it consists of different, all, all kinds of people. We have a paramedic, we have nurses, we have a social worker, we have dinner ladies, we have GPs, we have uh, radiographers, we have physiotherapists, we have had vicars play for us. We just have normal, we're just normal women just wanting to play rugby. We're fully supported by the club. More recently in lockdown, some of the ladies did uh, emergency food parcels in the local area. So Lawrence Weston, Ava Mouthshire, Seamills, Hembury. Um, all in all, I think we delivered something like 1,300 uh, plus food parcels. We also did prescription pickups and just generally getting people people's things where they were shielded in lockdown. Uh, we've also uh, started off Unity, which is period poverty. Yeah, so we are a we are a busy club, and it we try to help the community with trying to keep kids off the street and playing something with their friends, the sport with their friends. We have lots of social events. Um, we go on tour every year. Like for instance, the ladies last season, we went kayaking, we went on a fishing trip, we did lots together. So we're like a I suppose it's like a bit of a sisterhood, really. But yeah, we are we are a good good bunch of people in in the area, and you know we all work well together in the club. So the club started in '95. Can you just sort of describe how that happened, the ladies' rugby team? Uh, the first time it started, it, again, it was mums at the club. Um, a lady called Kath McGrath started it with um, a few of the other ladies. Unfortunately, Kath passed away a couple of years ago, so. But it, it was done. Again, mums at the club, their children played at the club. Again, they entered a league and um, I think they played for, I think it was five or six years. And then, you know, when younger people start playing, you know, they, they choose not to play. or And it sort of like stopped, but we restarted it four seasons ago. And how do you feel society's attitudes are to ladies playing rugby? Uh, yeah, that's interesting actually. Uh, we obviously we are aware that people, some people don't agree with it. But to be honest, our club and our and our community are fully behind this one hundred percent. And I think that knowing that they got somewhere for their their daughters to play as well, I think is and and they fully support us. We have we always have a full crowd when we play at home. You know we are we are it is is a good team to be in. What do you feel that rugby does for particularly young women for, for sport and health and fitness? Uh, obviously health and fitness, it, it, that's, that goes without saying. But I think 
young girls aspire not to just, they can do things that boys can do. I know a lot of the younger girls are, you know, even in the under eights, they, they say now, even at seven years old, I can't wait to play in a ladies team, like it's all girls. Is They see it as being treated as equal, I think. Knowing that they can do, do things just like boys can do, play rugby. And in fact, actually, some of the girls are not bad at all. They all went down um, last year, or the girls' section went down to watch England Roses at Exeter. Unfortunately, there was an accident on the motorway and um, they, they couldn't get to the match. But we had a nice personal message from the England team to the, to the girls on the coach, which was nice. And um, the girls love it. They, they do love playing and, you know, I think it's good for them. How popular is ladies' rugby in Bristol? Uh, it, well, it never used to be popular, but the last, I'd say, three seasons, there every season there's other clubs popping up with, with ladies' teams. I mean, in our area, I think we have 10, 12 teams that, that are local to us. So it is quite... It, it's just getting more and more popular. Every club now, or you hear, every club, every season, they're starting a ladies' team or a girls' team. Or, and I just think that... It's just caught on so so quick uh, and it goes so well that I don't think sometimes people realise that women can give it just as good as much a go as men can. Um, can you tell me more about the clubhouse and uh, where you play? So we our clubhouse is in Barracks Lane, which is at the bottom of Sherhampton. Um, we've got a, a quite a big clubhouse. We have um, it's on, on on King George to Trust land, so we have three pitches. Um, we have changing room facilities. Um, we also have a bowling green at the back, which another club that Avon Mouth uses, and a boxing gym at the side, which uh, boxing club use. But we we facilitate a lot of people playing rugby, and um, it, it, it's just uh, it's fantastic to see um, that everybody you live that live in your community play rugby. We all play rugby. Um, I'm not saying they don't play football because they do, but the people. You know that we're all we're all like clusters of groups of friends. They're all surrounded around the around a rugby club. And uh, do you have any funny stories over the years or anecdotes of uh, the ladies' rugby team? Oh, there is quite a few. Not not a few that I can sound here. Um, we um, we went kayaking last year. Um, it was a brilliant day. Uh, none of some of us have ever been kayaking before, but we started off in the river and. We um, got down to the pub where we were having lunch and pulled in, had some lunch, got back out. And within a metre off of coming out, like, yeah, the boats were going over. We we capsized, I don't know, about 50 times all the way down the river. Um, we had to be back by five and we were still two miles out. Uh, we got back an hour and a half late, got in trouble. We had to have a, a, a boat go out and bring two kayaks back because they couldn't row anymore. Um, but yeah, we had a, a, a fantastic time. Um, when we went fishing last year, we had a, a girl that went fishing who's got a phobia of fish. That was quite funny because um, we were throwing fish at her. So um, uh, we were on rugby tour and um, we had a, we were having a few drinks. I. Uh, was having vodka, lime and lemonade. Unfortunately, my friend uh, Lee uh, put screen wash in a Robinson squash bottle. 
so I was adding screen wash to vodka and lemonade and needless to say I had quite a foamy stomach for quite a few days after. Um, it was the topic of the, the joke all weekend, in fact I still get it now. Somebody stuck uh, washing uh, car washers on my uh, sunglasses. But yeah, I was the butt of the joke all weekend, but it was quite funny. And what does the future hold for Avermouth ladies rugby team? We want, we want, obviously we want the girls to come up. Um, obviously us, us veterans um, are going to retire at some point. We, our next step this next season and the season after is we want to, we want to win the league. We want to go up to the next uh, league above. Um, and we just want to go on and on and on like that. We don't, we got mums in, in the rugby team. We've got daughters in the younger, in the younger sides that want to stay and play till their daughters reach to play so they can play with their daughters. It's a bit like, you know, dads and sons. Um, but, you know, our future is, is blossoming and we're, we can't wait really. What does Avonmouth mean to me? Thousands and thousands of newly arrived cars parked up and ready to be sold. It's also the birthplace of famous comedian Lee Evans. Yes, him from the Hollywood film There's Something About Mary, starring alongside Cameron Diaz. Hmm, <laughs> I bet you thought you wouldn't hear that name in Something About Avonmouth. Many generations of Bristolians have worked in the area's smeltering works. Here's Ivy and Alan to tell more. lucky enough to start at the smelting works at Avonmouth about a week before Christmas. But of course, in those days, they keep a week's money in hand. At Christmas week, we didn't have any money at all. And the neighbours rallied round and helped us. And my ex-boss, he sent me up some money. So we got by that. But he worked at the smelting works for 34 years until he had a double coronary which, and they are on about the scare of the cadmium at Shipham. But my husband worked in the cadmium plant for years. He used to have that pint of milk every day and passed the doctor every week. It was a terrible job, but I never heard him grumble once because he couldn't afford to grumble and he could not afford to stay home because you couldn't get help if you gave... If you gave your job up then, you would not get any labour money. Well, my, my husband had a double coronary, and then they found out that he was a diabetic, which caused gangrene in his foot. And I think partly it was due to the hard work and the fact that the money was not enough not to give him what he should have, considering the hard job that he had. Do you think the employers should have done something about that? 
Well, I don't know. I, uh, my husband was a very proud man, and he felt if they couldn't offer to help, he wouldn't ask for it. During the last couple of years of his, his illness, of course, the welfare officer did come and see him, and he did give him a little help in and out, but as for anything else, you could not get it. Let's go back to um, your your entry into uh, working life. Uh, yes. you, you were 17, you yes. turned up at the smelting works in Avonmouth. Yes. What, what were your impressions and, and uh, early experiences at the smelting works? Well, you arrived, I, I went by train, you, you were met, you went to the, into the, there was a large office block, the, the front of the works, where the personnel department and, and lots of other offices were, and then we were whisked a long way, walked all the way up through the works to the, uh, I suppose it was the northern side of the works, on the other side of, of King's Western Road, to a training building, along with a group of other people, both the chemists and also people, mainly ladies, who were taken on for the secretarial side of the, of the work. We all sat in alphabetical order in our seats and were given a week of introduction. Lots of tours of the plant, uh, being shown the various parts of the plant bit by bit, and that obviously took a long time. But being talked to about the history of the place, various things like when you collected your wages and where you collected these from, being given the handbook that I've got on the table in front of us, which was your Bible as to how you would get things, being told by the personnel department as the lady came in with the tea that the wheels of industry were oiled by tea. We were given, uh, as part of the introduction, those of us who were working in the labs, a white mug uh, to drink our tea out of, which I had until the mid-70s when... Sorry, let me just it. stop you there. I see the battery... ...as we did on the training course was to be shown how to use the internal works telephone system. Now, I'd never used a telephone in my life before. Well, I was scared to death of this thing, but we were shown how to dial and... It was the old-fashioned dialing system, and, and we made a telephone, a couple of telephone calls, and that sort of eased things down for me. The overall impression that you got during the week was how how dirty things were and how vast the works were, because we we walked to the furthest extremes of the works as part of the the tour of each particular plant. There were quite a few we didn't go to, but we we went to the the principal plants, the the zinc, the various zinc plants and um, the sulfuric acid production plant and so on. And uh, lots, of, lots of smells and uh, lots of dust around. Before I went to the Smetterworks, my father wanted me to become an engineer for BOAC and could get me an apprenticeship, was dead against me going to the smelting works. He said, that's an awful place down there. Have you seen all the, all the, the, the dust and the... the fumes and what have you and tried to dissuade me but I, I wanted to be a chemist 
and this was the best place to go to be a chemist, no question about that. And so in the end he said, okay, I won't, won't try any further, you, you go and do what you want to do. Obviously there was a lot of pollution there. One of the jobs we did, we, we regularly walked past the smelting, the sintering plant, on our way back to the laboratory, and I developed a reaction to sulfur dioxide, and it made me sneeze. And it got to the stage where, having walked past this plant, we got to perhaps 100, 200 yards further on, and the people I was with knew that I was going to sneeze, and they would turn and look at me, and then I would sneeze. And I would sneeze and sneeze. The, the record was about half an hour. And my, my ears itched, my eyes watered, my throat went, and my voice went deeper and deeper, and I just coughed and spluttered. And I, I've only ever met one other person who was affected in that way in, in all the rest of the years of my life. I was interested you mentioned Polish colleagues, and yes. you earlier mentioned having Polish refugees living in your home. Yes. Um, was that a, a feature of um, living in that time, that you had a uh, arrival of people who who'd fled the war and were now going to stay in the UK and did that? Were you it, aware of this I wasn't, I wasn't really, well, I certainly wasn't <clears throat> aware of the, I was aware of the people who lived in our house, obviously, not really aware of their background. I knew they had family in Poland because they used to get letters from Poland. One letter had a stamp uh, of the, showing the world with a dove sitting on the top of it. And they confided to us, their English wasn't very good, but eventually we got the message in Poland, the dove was regarded as Stalin, <laughs> who was sitting and oppressing the world. Uh, but the, the Russians didn't uh, didn't realise that, I don't think. But that was how the how the Poles saw it. I, I'm not sure. I'm, my grandmother must have advertised the rooms or, or was approached with somebody. I, I I have no background on that. The smelting works. That there were a lot of Polish people there, and I think they came over after the war or fled during the war. I worked with a Polish chemist in the research department who had been in the Polish army as a paratrooper and he had been captured by the Germans for a while and had escaped. He'd escaped, come to England and because we didn't have parachutists, uh, he was actually used to train people how to jump out of planes and, and, mm. and land on the ground and he, he, he told us once that he did it, they had to do a demonstration for some high-ups to show how good parachute was. He was told to get as close as possible to the dais where the dignitaries were standing, and he, he landed on the dais and they sort of scattered them. <laughs> um, but he, he was a very interesting uh, man who, who had this experience. There were, there were one or two other Polish people there in the research department. Uh, they were in the, the sort of engineering workshops, and one of them was the... the uh, the works glass blower, uh, who was very skilled at making scientific glassware, so a specialized skill. He, he had spe a, a specialized skill. If I had my time again, would I still go into chemistry? Oh yes. Oh, I enjoyed chemistry. I met okay. some nice people, and did some interesting things, and and I think contributed to the the wealth and well-being of the nation as a whole, in a very small way. Alan, thank you very much. You're Indeed. welcome. Pleasure to meet you. Thanks for your time. For this episode, I'd like to thank Andy King, Rosabel Portella, and Stephen Carroll. 
This podcast has been brought to you by BCFM, Bristol's first community radio station, in partnership with Bristol 24-7, Bristol Museums, Bristol Archives, and the University of the West of England, funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Cheers, mate. Bye.